and we'll be in verses one through 10. Quick note, just as I'm reading, um, there are multiple women in this passage. There are multiple women in the first few chapters of Exodus. In this particular passage, there are two who are not given names here who are named later in the book. Um, Yochebed is Moses' mother and Miriam is his sister. So in the interest of identifying them and, and giving them substance, um, I'll be just inserting their names into the text. So just be warned. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman, Yochebed. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister Miriam stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister Miriam said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, yes. So the girl went and called Yochebed. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me and I will give you your wages. So Yochebed took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So we're beginning to see some of the captivating storytelling of this author. There's multiple plots and themes and foreshadowing and irony that fill these first few chapters, especially if you've read ahead or know some of the story, they start to really connect. Uh, but if you've read the previous story too, through Genesis, which is the context, uh, we start to see some themes continue to weave and the tension is rising, right? This is uh, a story to enter into. It is, it is our collective story, not just our history, uh, especially for those that find their roots of faith through Jesus and through his lineage all the way back, really to the beginning, but especially to the, the forefathers named Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those covenant holders and bearers. When we trace our lineage back through all the way uh, to the beginning, we see that this is our, our story, and we enter into it. It should grip us if we'll let it grip us. And for example, we can simply ask the questions, what parent hasn't wondered or even feared for the safety or the future of their child? What parent isn't willing to do anything to protect them, to provide for them, to give them the best possible chance at a future? For the non-parents, who can't relate to being in a circumstance that might be paralyzing with fear and uncertainty that it seems like any decision made will have significant consequences? or perhaps not even seeing what the right decision or a decision could be. So we can enter into this story. 
Let's look back for a moment and remind where we've been for those that are just joining us in the journey and for those who can barely remember what they had for breakfast. The family of Israel has been in Egypt now for nearly four centuries. Since the time of Jacob and his 12 sons and one of the youngest, Joseph, who rose up to power through that incredible story at the end of Genesis. All of those years hadn't been hard years. In fact, we're not told much of those years, but they came with some sense of favor and blessing. And that may have lasted for, for many of those centuries. A partnership, though Israel were still maybe the outsiders or the immigrants or the refugees, they partnered together in agriculture and business and formed a society. It wasn't until these recent years that are highlighted that that all changed. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all of that generation had died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. This is chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Now that first, let me pause there. That, that is supposed to call us back to the beginning of the whole story in Genesis where God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So Exodus is telling this continuation story. So here's Israel, God's family, his people being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. That's what he declares. But then, right, this all changes. A new king who did not know about Joseph and really did not care about Joseph or this God of his came into power and said, look, the Israelites have now become too numerous for us. We must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war were to break out, they would join our enemies against us and fight us and drive us out of the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. I don't know how long this season of life was, but likely it seems like it's many years that this oppression is, is taking place, growing ever harsher. And likely uh, Israel, for those that still believed in the God of their forefathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, as some clearly do, would have wondered, where is our God? Is he present with us? Will he show up and work and rescue or heal or deliver or will he remain absent? Verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. This should have been a clear sign to those paying attention that God was, in fact, with them, fulfilling his commission to them, his promise to them to be fruitful and multiply. Even in the midst of these bleak circumstances, in opposition and in trial, they grow, they flourish, they multiply, which would have been maybe the most important thing for a fledgling nation like that to see its numbers increase and expand, even against all odds and oppression. A picture of an oasis in a desert comes to mind where it looks like nothing but barrenness and lifelessness, there is growth and life. And the only possibility is there's a deep and perhaps hidden wellspring bringing that life. And that seems to be the picture of Israel thriving and multiplying and being fruitful even in the midst of harsh season and oppression against them. The Egyptians, continuing the story, verse 12, the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. And Pharaoh, we saw in chapter 1, even commanded the 
the Hebrew midwives to put to death newborn infant boys. Those midwives we saw last week refused, fearing God more than Pharaoh, likely at the risk of their own lives. And God's response to them was favor, grace, blessing even. He gave them families of their own, the text says. But Pharaoh would not be deterred and took his power and malice, motivated by fear, to the next level and made a more sweeping command to execute all of these Hebrew baby boys. All boys must be cast into the Nile. So with this as a backdrop, we enter into chapter 2. Imagine the fear and anxiety of expecting families, especially expecting mothers, to hear that decree. Or those that found themselves to be pregnant, maybe even hoping not to be. Imagine that uncertainty, fear, and anxiety. Pregnancy was already a risky endeavor in ancient times, and this goes way back, so it's a little uncertain, but uh, the, probably the best scholarship estimates that 2 to 3% of all women would die in the process of pregnancy and childbirth through multiple factors. Some would estimate that as twice that percentage. So just consider being a mother, and maybe in our current context, and for, for many of us, hearing you're, you're pregnant is joyful, has been waited for, is, is an expected thing, and it builds this anticipation and hope and excitement and probably some uncertainty and trepidation with it. But generally speaking, most moms don't quickly think about their own livelihood, their own life, maybe their own health and how everything will change, but their own life. Put yourself into that context. Just, just by comparison, maybe that's, that's difficult for us to grasp. If living is what you're interested in, it would be better for a woman today to find out that she has breast cancer than for a woman then to find out she's pregnant. This was not an easy thing. Now layer on to that this decree that's now come from the Pharaoh that all boys must be put to death. And just the anxiety, the trepidation, nine months for uh, Moses' parents here. Well, it's not the primary point of this message. I think it's worth mentioning that even in our, in our context today, friends and neighbors or coworkers, perhaps some even of you, hearing that you are pregnant is not an exciting or joyful thing, but is actually something that is unwanted or brings anxiety or fear. Certainly in our broader context, there are many who are devastated by that news, have no idea how they can possibly provide for or protect this coming child, knowing that whatever happens, life will never look the same. And I would just want to say to those who are in that place or for those loved ones, they're not alone. You're not alone. First, we have a God who sees, who knows that pain and that uncertainty and is with you. We also know that there are countless strong and brave and faithful women who have walked that road ahead. And if you are one or no one, if there's resources that we could be of assistance or service, please let us know through me or through our mercy team. And if you know 
someone that might be in that situation. Pray of how you might love and pursue them, to walk alongside them for encouragement. Maybe makes this, this account and this story a little more real for us. Let's return to it. So at some point along the way, and maybe from day one, the mother decided to fight for the life of her newborn child, making plans to keep, to protect, to defy this evil decree. Now, interestingly, the text says, and depending on your translation, it may say something slightly different. When, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Maybe, your tech, maybe the text in your translation says, beautiful, as the NASB does. When she saw that he was a beautiful child, she decided to hide him. Was she uncertain? Did it, did it depend on looks? It's a weird phrase, and I think, I think translators have struggled to translate it, but perhaps the simplest translation is the, the most correct one if we understand the context. It's the Hebrew word tov, which simply can mean many things, but primarily means good. But that, that sounds strange to our ears. When she saw that he was a good child, what do you mean by, what do you mean by good? I think this is a call back to Genesis 1. Again, continuing the story. That we're repeatedly again and again at creation, God looks upon what was created and says, it is tov. It is good at its essence. So this, she, she was not wavering on appearances. As if any newborn child is beautiful, maybe outside of the eyes of a mother, She's not wondering, let's take a look and see whether this one should deserve to be cast into the Nile. No, there's a call back here representing the heart of God and the character of God in the mother and as a mother, as a creative being. This life is good. Creation is good. Babies are good and a part of God's plan to multiply in the earth. So she's joining in the heart of God saying, there could be no other way but to fight for the life of this one, like all mothers would rightly say. That's what I, I believe that line means. Again, a reminder that God is right there in the midst with them in this pain and uncertainty and fear. So for three months, she keeps the boy hidden, but it must have been harder and harder. We can only imagine, reading between the lines, the restlessness of that likely sleeping close with the child every night and protecting and keeping one ear open to any signs of, of intrusion to come and wrest this child away. How do you keep a one-month-old, two-month-old baby silent that no neighbors would hear? Likely they're in, a, they're in a broader community of Israelites and maybe they're working together for the lives of these young ones. Banding together. I, I have to believe that is probably true. And yet, still, likely, if, with, if the evil reach of Pharaoh is, is anything like we see as the story progresses, uh, there's these tragic stories of break-ins and stealing of babies and execution. So just imagine that ongoing fear and anxiety. We, as parents, maybe can somewhat relate to the uncertainty of how to protect this little life and nurture, nurture its breath and heartbeat and keep it safe. And yet it's nothing like what they endured. You know, as a parent of school-aged children now, being reminded of 
of how incremental it was to trust God with this life and give it away, watching them sleep at night or when they first went from the bassinet by the bedside into their own room at night or those next steps of independence as they grow, first going into the care of another or into a daycare or then into a preschool or off to kindergarten and those little step-by-step increments of, of, of trust. Even this year, it was the first year that our kids were able, according to the school rules, to ride their bikes. We're about a mile away from the school, so to ride their bikes on their own and then ride their bikes home. And that first day hit me unexpectedly. I was just excited that I could send them out and say, it's time for school, go. Leave, little birdies, fly away. But then just watching them ride their bikes away and all the waves of from infant to toddler to preschool and kindergarten kind of just came back in the moment and seeing them ride off on the busy streets, still neighborhood streets, but people drive way too fast on neighborhood streets. Just that, again, an opportunity to release them, to entrust these that are really not, not mine to, to, to save to care for. There's another who loves them more deeply. And that's an exercise for parents at any stage, right? I hope these next stages, middle school and high school and driving and college and dating and marriage, always in that order, of course, (laughs) will be opportunities as a parent to release, to trust, and to be reminded that they're not ours. They are God's. They're his lives and his souls entrusted to us for a time to care for and nurture and try to keep some protection around as much as possible. The internal threats sometimes are as significant as the external ones in these days. And all of that, too, is an opportunity to trust. But I'm thankful, even reading this story, we never had to wrestle with some of the same things that these early parents did. Amazing what they walked through, how brave and courageous they were. I think the author of this story wants us to see that God is at work behind the scenes. He hasn't yet shown up. In fact, in all of the prayers that you have to imagine from these parents, God help, God rescue, God deliver, God show up, God do something. I don't know what they would have sounded like. And really the only glimpse we have is the Hebrew midwives feared God. The roots of their faith was still in place. And we have to believe that, that Moses' family at least had some sense of that history. Maybe, maybe they weren't even prayerful people because God doesn't intervene and show up. So they were just leaning in to whatever it takes to save this life. But God is not showing up. But as we know the stories unfold, and I think the author wants us to see God is there. He is present He is at work, though it's not being felt yet. He's about to intervene, we'll see in the coming pages, but that'll be decades in the future still from this perspective. So she does what must have been the hardest thing ever that any any mother has ever done. I I can't imagine placing a three-year-old child into this self-handmade basket weaved by with reeds and drifting down the riverside. Apparently, she sends the sister, Miriam, the older sister, along to see what might happen. But as she's releasing, only the barest hope that this could turn out good. Because even if the child is discovered, the decree is to put him to death. She releases this child. 
Now, I think we'd want to read into the story that she had this incredible faith in this God who provides, and he's going to rescue. I don't know that we can make that stretch. But she is a very brave, incredibly strong woman. And it seems to be her only option and only glimmer of hope for the life of, who will, of this one who will be named Moses. So Moses is found, the baby is found, and in miraculous ways that we could not explain, given back to his own mother through his sister, who's now an advocate, Miriam is an advocate, presenting this idea, which did not have to be received by, by Pharaoh's daughter, but was, and it's just an incredible story of God weaving some, some of these things together of who will become an agent of the deliverance of the people of Israel, a miraculous salvation and story. So God saves Moses, or at least I think we're meant to read the story as this one is special. Maybe the faith of the mom is so special that this one is saved and spared and now invited in to the work of God and to the story of God. It's ironic because now this baby boy that Pharaoh had commissioned his death for ends up being raised in his own household by his provisions, and it will lead to the deliverance of the people that he's trying to oppress. His mother is even paid for her services as a wet nurse, though it is his own mother. Now, that season could have lasted for years. Uh, in, in that culture, but I, you still have to imagine both the joy and that tension, the joy in the life being saved and that she gets to cherish each of these moments knowing that will come to an end and again she will release this baby boy into the hands of another and ultimately into God's hands. It's ironic, I think worth calling out, ironic here that Pharaoh wants the Israelite boys put to death because he fears that they are increasing in number. He fears the boys' strength, that if an, they were to rise into an army, it could, it could defeat him. It could threaten him. And yet, the way the whole story is playing out this far, it is the women who rise up in strength and bravery and faithfulness to eventually overthrow his kingdom. Pretty awesome. And, and the irony continues in the way that this life is saved and spared. We have to imagine, and if you know the story, you know it's true, uh, but at this point we have to imagine that Pharaoh uh, will not take this sitting down, that his evil plans have been thwarted, first by these midwives, now by a mom, although he doesn't know it yet, and now by a baby boy who will come into his own house. That he really, and what I think the author wants us to see, has no control and power in this story. Though it looks like it on a worldly perspective, there is a sovereign over him and over all things. And that gives us hope when we look into our present circumstances and feel that God is absent, not intervening, not answering prayers, letting evil go, letting oppression and hurt and, and death and sorrow just run its course. We're invited to be faithful, brave people, sometimes who simply enter in to do what is right, even if we feel that God is far from us, 
and other times holding on to the hope of the broad story arc that has been told across scripture and across history, that God will not allow injustice and oppression to reign forever. He will come and righteously judge and establish his kingdom in his way and in his timing. We can wrestle with the mystery and the hardship of that, but we're meant to be invited to wrestle with it. This is our collective story, and I think it can grip us in all of these ways I'm trying to present to us because it's God's story and the grand narrative that he is writing and at work in. Two more things. It should remind us of another story that I want to call out and the reason for those two coloring sheets on your back table that you've been listening so intently for. And it should foreshadow another story, which will lead us into response. First, it's to remind us of Noah and his ark. And that seems totally lost on the story. They're, to- they're completely different things. A little basket versus this large Barge made out of gopher wood, if you read back into Genesis 6 and 7 and 8 in that story. But this is the only time the Hebrew, only two times in all of Scripture that the Hebrew word tava shows up. Translated in Genesis as ark, Noah's ark, and translated here in Exodus as basket. We miss, that's, that's another miss by English translation. It should be ark. In some translations, King James got this one right. It does say an ark. And that should make the reader go, what? (laughs) Because again, the continuation of the story. And then we start to see the parallels. That both were covered with this pitch so they could float through the waters. The waters that brought death to many, or at least were intended for death, ended up bringing salvation and life to those in the ark. That they were drawn out of the water and rescued. So there's a continued storyline and the the theme of water and deliverance through water and salvation and life through water runs pretty strong through scripture and especially in the rest of this story. So it's to make us remember Noah's Ark and Moses' Ark, that God can save even through the most unlikely circumstances. Ironically and providentially, this baby Hebrew became like an Egyptian, was rejected by his own people, ultimately became an exile. This will be the continuation of the story. But would eventually stand up to the forces of evil and lead his people to salvation. Even his name Moses is from the Hebrew to draw out because he was drawn out of the water. And Moses too would draw out God's people from Egypt, delivering them through the water to salvation. This is the bridge to the foreshadow of the coming story, to an even greater deliverance, 1,000 years into the future, perhaps to the only name that kind of rises in significance above all other Hebrew names in all of the scripture, the name Yeshua, Jesus. And the connection is meant to be clear in the way that the story unfolds, not from the original author, but from the ones later who see that storyline being woven If you know the story of Jesus, his parents also were distraught how they could possibly protect him. There was a decree from another evil king, Herod in this case, to put to death all baby boys. They would defy that and protect his life through the only means they knew how. They escaped. 
ironically, to Egypt so that he too would have some kind of influence growing up in Egypt as a refugee who would later become in exile himself, rejected by his own family, and yet would eventually stand up to the forces of evil and lead people to salvation through miraculous signs and wonders and provision. We press into that story and imagine his parents, and especially his mother, Mary, also not knowing how to protect him and provide for him, born into meager, humble circumstances, eventually needing to let him go. And it seems like, unlike any of the other children, and even her own, this one had a specific call to go and to be his own. And she needed to release him and entrust him ultimately to God's hands. Picture her there at the foot of the cross, witnessing the crucifixion of her son. This too should give us great hope Our God has not changed, and he's writing a story of salvation from beginning to end. Even in the midst of circumstances that seem bleak and dire and uncertain, we have a history of a foundation of faith and hope. And perhaps for those walking through hard circumstances or trials or pain or uncertainty, we wonder, is it possible that God could intervene or that God could be at work to birth something new, to bring life through seeming death. This is who our God is. And we're invited to bravely hold on to that faith, to trust him. But to trust him will cost us. To trust God in this way costs us not just worldly pursuits and pleasures or acclaim and advancement and achievements, that we're told by so many other voices, polling for our attention must be the path to the fullness of life, to trust God and his promises that he alone is the fullness of life, that that's a spiritual one, that his kingdom comes to dwell within us for justice and mercy and peace and grace and freedom and hope and life. So often it costs us at this inner turmoil level where faith hits the rubber road and we wrestle with whether we can truly believe it and walk in it. We lean toward our own abilities or perspectives to other leaders or institutions who promise a better life and maybe, maybe a blind belief that things must simply get better. Or we can join with the followers of God throughout history who have been desperate enough to trust him with what they hold most dearly. And for many, that's beyond our own lives, but the lives of our loved ones or our children, their future, our our legacy. These are the things that we're invited in to hold by faith and to resonate with the history of those that have gone before us bravely. Will we trust him find that he is good, that he is loving, and that he is faithful. And we should call out, too, as I close here, another meta-narrative that we see throughout the scriptures that God loves to enter into the story of those who are walking bravely, standing for truth. It's the mystery of both God's working, initiation, and presence all along, even when not seen or experienced, 
and people simply doing the right thing. Kingdom stuff, goodness stuff that God enters into. And that story of blessing the least likely or using the most unexpected ones, that they, be, with, with him, become like the heroes of the story that he loves to shine light upon, that we too could find hope that God sees us. Our story is not their story as far as the details and the circumstances, but recognizing that God loves it and delights in us always and uniquely when we walk into his kingdom ways. Even when we're uncertain, God, I don't even sense that you are near or leading me or telling me to walk in this way, but I believe it is right. It's the ways of Jesus, the ways of love, of sacrifice, of mercy, of fighting for and working for life and justice and equity. May we be that kind of people, knowing that whether we sense it or not, God is with us, and we want to walk with him. Let's pray. God, we believe you are a good God, a good father, and in that what we've seen in this story, like a good mother who has given life and says it is good, who sees babies and says they are good and a part of your plan. You love us, God, and you love our loved ones more than we ever will or can. Help us trust you. You want our good, our life, and life to the full. So God, pursue us in ways that we can sense your pursuit and help us to pursue others as you would in a way that they too will know about your love. Teach us to love like you do and to pursue like you do with a rich and deep and growing faith and hope. And God, for those here or listening with children that they don't know how they can possibly protect or save or provide for their future or lead well, God, be their anchor and their peace. We pray that you would intervene and orchestrate even a miraculous salvation and story that we could never imagine because you are that good and you love that much. Help us trust you. Help us look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him even endured the cross, walking through something incredibly difficult and painful to bring life to others. We receive that again today and walk toward him through communion and walk toward him through fellowship. And as we walk out of this place today, we walk toward him and with him into our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our homes that we would represent you well in the coming days for your glory and our joy, we pray. Amen.